Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 25. We're discussing the Olivet Discourse, which was on the Tuesday of Passion Week, three days before Jesus was crucified. Jesus has predicted doom and gloom on the apostate, rabbinic, pharisaical order of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In chapter 23, chapter 23 he's pronounced eight woes upon their head. He said their house will be left desolate. Chapter 24, he talks about, he says that not one stone of the temple will be left on top of the other. And then in chapter 25, he talks about, he gives three parables which talk about people not getting into the kingdom. The parable of the ten virgins, the five virgins try to get into the wedding banquet and the master of the wedding banquet or the, the groom that's come back, that's Jesus says, go away, I never knew you, you ain't coming in here. And then you got the parable of the talents, five, two talents were invested into the kingdom, but the one talent guy didn't invest in the kingdom. He hid his talent, and as a result, he was thrown into the place where there's, into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That all those two parables refer to the apostate Jews who do not believe in the in Jesus and His kingdom, and who pun, are punished eternally for it. Now we get to the sheep and the goats, and the theme will be the same. The goats are going to be thrown into eternal fire because they represent the apostate Jews who don't believe in Jesus. Now. I have always had a little bit of trouble applying the parable of the sheep and the goats to the situation in Jerusalem in AD 70 and not applying it to the Jesus coming back at the end of time. I'm going to give you a strong argument why I believe that this parable refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when we get there, when I get there. But for right now, I'm going to assume that this is referring to 87 and we'll start with verse 31 in Matthew 25 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on the throne of his glory what I'm going to do is show you that in these verses there are five terms that are directly parallel to a place in the Olivet Discourse which I think is beyond a shadow of a doubt referring to 8070 so if you tie those two places together you end up with the sheep and the goats also being in 8070 also, another argument that this is referring to 8070 is the, is the connection with the two previous parables, which I've shown very clearly refer to 8070. John Gill says this, The close connection between this sublime scene, peculiar to Matthew, and the two preceding parables, that's the parable of the talents and the ten virgins, and the two preceding parables is too obvious to need pointing out. Yeah, they, they parallel each other very, very well. And if you believe the first two parables refer to 8070, I'm not sure Gill thought that, but I do, well then... Once you've come to that conclusion, then the conclusion that the sheep and the goats follows is not so difficult. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here. That's Jesus' most common title for himself. It's a messianic title. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's never used by anyone else except by Jesus. And it's used by Jesus as a messianic title to describe himself. The term itself comes from Daniel 7 and 13 and 14. Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Of course, here it's coming up to receive the kingdom. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him, Daniel says. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. And Jesus is referring to the fulfillment of this prophecy, which happened in AD 70. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Here's a bunch of information I got off the internet to show that the Son of Man is a messianic term. You would think that it refers to his humanity, and it does, but it's more closely connected with his divinity. As I said, it came from that passage in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where it was the Son of Man who was coming up to the kingdom, up to the Ancient of Days, in order to inherit his kingdom, which means that's a messianic term. And even more than the context of Daniel, we know from 
the life history of Daniel himself. He was a prisoner of the old Babylonians, of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile, which started in 586 B.C. In old Babylonian, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a son of man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. All right, so we've got the son of man. He's talking messianically here. He's talking about a kingdom that's about to be established. And his kingdom, I think, was fully established when the Old Testament false kingdom, the pseudo-kingdom of the rabbinic Jews, the apostate Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when that was done away with, then Jesus came to receive his kingdom. In his glory, Daniel refers to the word glory. So the Son of Man is going to have glory there. And all his angels, we're going to translate that as messengers, angelos, the plural of angelos means uh, messenger as well as angel. And we'll tie that to the Olivet Discourse and show that that's talking about preachers of the gospel who are going out as messengers, spreading the gospel all over the place. He will sit on the throne of his glory, of course, as, as a king. He will inherit his king in glory. Now, let's look at the problem that I mentioned that preterists have, that a preterist might have in interpreting the sheep and goats, sheep and goats parable as 8070. For one reason, it says that all nations shall be gathered in verse 32, and that sounds like the end of the world. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. This must be understand of Christ coming at the last day to judge mankind, though all the preceding part of the chapter may be applied also to the destruction of Jerusalem. Note how Clark grants the possibility of a preterist interpretation of the ten virgins parable and the parable of the talents, but he, he's not willing to go that far on the sheep and the goats. The problem here is, is that where's there a switch? Everybody admits that there's a, something preterist going on somewhere in Matthew 24 and 25. Even futurists do because the, obviously the, in the temple being torn down that Jesus predicted in, the, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, obviously that happened in AD 70, so even the most rank futurists can't deny that. And then you got Orthodox preterists like Kenneth Gentry who says at verse 36 there's a switch from AD 70 to the end of time coming of Jesus. But the problem is Jesus doesn't mention it. Why would the disciples have any idea that he was switching? I, I don't think any reader of the Gospels today, of Matthew 24 today, would have any idea that Jesus had switched to the end of time. So now if we go to the next two parables, where is there an indication of the switch with the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents? There's no indication there's a switch. And between the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats, where is an indication that Jesus gives to his disciples that he's switching to the end of time? So I think that it's better to interpret this thing in its context and say that the parable of the sheep and the goats fits with the other two parables and it's referring to eighty seventy. And we will, I'll show you how I can do that in just a minute. But first, let's go to verse 32 in Matthew 25. All the nations will be gathered before him. Now, again, that sounds like the end of time, but not necessarily. And he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, what I'm going to do here is to show you why I think that this passage of the sheep and the goats, this parable, is referring to AD 70. I'm going to give you several arguments to to show you why I believe that to be so. The first is that there's no arguments for a switch from 8070 to the end of time, as I've just mentioned. And everybody's got to switch somewhere, or you just don't switch at all. My opinion is just easier not to switch at all. The futurist switch at verse 3. Kenneth Gentry switches at verse 36. And I don't switch anywhere. Jesus never says anything about a switch. All right, now let's look at the parallels here. We are going to take two verses in Matthew 24 which, in my opinion, it refers to 8070. If you're an Orthodox preterist, you believe that with no trouble. 
that's 80-70. But now the sheep and the goats, a lot of Orthodox preterists don't think that the sheep and goats refers to 80-70. But if I told you that two verses in Matthew 24 have five terms in those short two verses, the same five terms that are in the parable of the sheep and the goats, why would the sheep and goats not therefore be contextually tied to Matthew 24, i.e. 80-70? Well, I'm going to show you right now. Here are the five terms. First, Son of Man in the Olivet Discourse, 80-70. Matthew 24:30 Then the sign of the son of man will appear sheep and the goats Matthew 25:31 When the son of man comes there's your parallel second word coming Matthew 24:30 that's Olivet discourse 80:70 Matthew 24:30 They will see the son of man coming sheep and the goats Matthew 25 verse 31 When the son of man comes there's the parallel the the common words coming the third word is glory, Matthew 24:30. The Son of Man will appear with power and great glory. That's AD 70, Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. But Matthew 25, sheep and the goats, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. There's your third parallel. Fourth word, angels, which is better translated messengers. Matthew 24:31. he will send out his messengers. That's, of course, his evangelist to bring people into the kingdom. Matthew 25, 31. Uh, Matthew 24, of course, is the Olivet Discourse, 80, 70, no question. But now, sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, verse 31, and all the messengers with him. There's the parallel. Gather. Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 31. They will gather his elect. These messengers will gather his elect. That's referring to evangelists who are going out evangelizing people into the kingdom of Christ, the church. They will gather his elect, Olivet Discourse, 80-70, Matthew 24-31. Sheep and the goats parable, Matthew 25, verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. So there you have five, five words that are in common between those two passages. And if you'd buy that Matthew 24 is referring to 80-70, which all Orthodox preterists do, because Kenneth Tinsley doesn't switch doesn't have the switch to the future till verse 36. This is verses 30 and 31. So all Orthodox preterists believe that the Olivet Discourse in verse 30 and 31 refers to 8070. And if you can find five words in that 8070 Olivet Discourse in the parable of the sheep and goats, then the parable of the sheep and the goats logically is saying the same thing, just put in parable form. I don't have any problem anymore. Sheep and the goats refers to 8070. Now, regardless of whether you take a futurist or a preterist interpretation of the parable of the sheep and the goats, note that nations cannot be saved. The nations will be on the left of him. Nations are going to be on the right of him. A nation cannot be thrown into hell, or a nation cannot enter into eternal life. And these sheep and the goats, the goats go to hell and the sheep into eternal life. And they represent nations, but nations can't be saved. So the parable is talking about individuals from all the nations of the world getting saved or getting thrown into hell, as the case may be. Matthew 25, verse 33. He, meaning God, will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Now these sheep, or excuse me, the goats, are analogous to the foolish virgins in the first parable in chapter 25, the five foolish virgins, and the one talent man in the parable of the talents. These first two parables in Matthew 25 are referring to these foolish Jews and Pharisees and Sadducees who didn't believe in Jesus. They were referring to the lost. They were not led into the wedding banquet in the case of the virgins, foolish virgins. They, uh, and, and Jesus said to them, go away, I never knew you. And then in the parable of the talents, they were thrown into that place where there was darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are non-believing people. And we see here these goats are getting ready to be thrown into eternal fire, hell. These are not believers. These are the bad, 
the people who murdered Jesus and persecuted the apostles from synagogue to synagogue. Now, why does he say he puts the sheep on his right? This is an allusion to the two scribes who stood before the judges in the Sanhedrin. The scribe on the right wrote the sentence for the acquitted if a judge, if a, a defendant was acquitted. The scribe on the left wrote the sentence for the guilty if the accused was not acquitted. The rabbis thought the right hand symbolized approbation and eminence. The left hand symbolized rejection and disapprobation. This is according to Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. This right and left idea, as you can see it in the Old Testament a lot, 1 Kings 2.19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne place for the king's mother. That was Bathsheba. So she sat down at his right hand. The right hand is a place of honor. Psalm 49, 45, verse 9. King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands where? At your right hand. Talking about these, this is the psalm is addressed to the king. Psalms 110.1. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. This is David speaking. The declaration of the Lord. That's Yahweh to my Lord. That's Adonai the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So even the Messiah... God the Son sits at God the Father's right hand, the place of honor. And so this is what Jesus is saying here. The sheep on his right are going to be saved. Goats on the left, they're going to be found guilty. Chapter 25, verse 34 in Matthew. Then the king will say to those on his right, as Jesus continues with his parable. The king, of course, who refers to God. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. That's the sheep. Those are the ones who believe. Inherit the kingdom. And, of course, all these parables about the kingdom. Remember, the whole idea is Jesus in Daniel 7 is coming up to the Ancient of Days to receive kingdom in glory. And here, the sheep are going to inherit the kingdom. Everything's about the kingdom. For the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. You, are, you will recall that the parable of the ten virgins started out with the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is talking about the establishment of the kingdom, separating of the, of the foolish virgins and the believing virgins, the separating of the non-believing Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees against the Christian Jews. That's in the parable of the virgin, the kingdom of heaven. And then again, the parable of the ten talents, it will be like it, referring to the kingdom of heaven. And then there's a separation there between the five and two talent people, the believers, and the one talent guy who had his talents, the non-believing Jews. And then we get here to 34, the sheep and the goats. We have the sheep and the goats separated, the believing sheep on the right, the unbelieving goats on the left, because the believing sheep are going to go into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So you see the commonality of these three parables. There's judgment on the bad guys, and then there's a kingdom being prepared for the good guys in all three parables, and all of it goes back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where Jesus comes to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, in order to receive his kingdom. Now notice that these people who inherit the kingdom are blessed by the Father. There's no hint of rewards due to the merit of the receiver. They're just blessed. God gives it to them. There's nothing that says you're going to have to work for it. God gives out of his grace, not out of his debt. He doesn't owe us a thing that believe in him. Notice that the kingdom of heaven was prepared from the foundation of the world. That means that heaven was created at the same time the physical universe was created. Assuming that kingdom of heaven is referring to eternal abode of the saints, the place where the saints will live forever. It was prepared for the foundation of the world. God had everything ready for us even before he made us. Now, it could not have been prepared for people on the basis of good works they might do because it was prepared before anyone had a chance to do a good work, before the foundation of the world. Nobody had done anything good then, but he still prepared a place for us. Now, this verse doesn't say anything about election, actually, because the saints, it doesn't say the saints were chosen before the foundation of the world. However, there are other verses that say that. 
Ephesians 2, I think it, I can't even remember off the top of my head, but there are verses that say that the saints were chosen before the foundation of the world. But it does say that the kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world. Why? Because the saints were chosen before the foundation of the world. There's got to be a place to put them. Now, it's interesting that Jesus in this parable refers himself to himself as a king. The king will say to those on his right. He's talking about himself as a king three days before he's going to be crucified as a criminal. The difference between the way the world looks at Jesus and the way God looks at Jesus, the way Jesus looks at himself, the way Christians look at Jesus, the difference is astounding. Matthew 25, verses 35 through 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Now remember, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples to keep his kingdom going through the persecution that's going to be coming for this next generation, this next 40 years. And he's already told in the parable of the talents. Invest your talents. Five talents, two talents, you put them to work. Invest them in interest. Keep working. Be like a, a sensible virgin. Fill yourself up with oil. Do good works. Do the work of the kingdom. Don't get depressed. Sit in your in your molehills and bemoan the fact that the Jews are persecuting you to death. And now he continues with that theme here and he says, look, Feed my brethren is what he's going to talk about. Take care of my church. Now, when he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, notice that this does not teach works salvation, as John Gill points out. It describes their characters, which evidence the grace of God working within. Their good works here were the, was the fruit of their salvation, not the root of their salvation. But just because that's true does not mean we should be ashamed or reticent about talking about Christians need to be doing good works. I've got no problem with saying it. Hebrews 6.10 says it. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you serve the saints and you continue to serve them. Serve the saints. And this is what this parable is about. Chapter 25, verses 37 through 39. Then the righteous, that's analogous to the five sensible virgins and the sheep and the five and two talent men and the sheep. Then the righteous will answer him. This is righteous Christians doing works of mercy. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? This is talking about good works. Now, it does not refer about good works done to the world at large. All the works of mercy non-Christians do, and they indeed do those kind of works because Christians love non-Christians. But And it also doesn't refer to works of mercy that non-Christians do because non-Christians aren't doing it in the name of the Lord. They're just doing it out of a sense of altruism, which is fine. But it doesn't, uh, you know, good works done in the name of Jesus do not merit anything as far as your salvation goes with Jesus. It's common grace, I guess. I'm glad they're doing those good works. A lot of good works are being done, but it's not. A, they, they don't. Those good works don't do a thing to get people into heaven or get closer to Jesus. Now, these Christians who are being told that they're righteous and being told that they had that they gave Jesus something to eat, gave Jesus something to drink, and took Jesus in when he was a stranger, and clothed Jesus when he was naked, and took care of him when he was sick, and visited him when he was in prison. They say, well, when did we do that? We never did that. Jesus never got sick. He was never in prison. So they're going to say, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? He was never like that. He was never. He never needed hospitality. When we, Jesus always had clothes. When were you without clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Matthew 25, verse 40. And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus calls his believers, those who followed him, his brothers. And Jesus is saying, you take care of the saints, you're taking care of me. You take care of me. 
these brothers of mine. Now, let me give you some options as to who those brothers could stand for. Some people say it just refers to the apostles. What you did for the apostles, that's too narrow in my humble opinion. I don't think that's reasonable. But now some people say it's the brothers of Jesus are all human creation. I don't believe that because the non-believing people who don't follow Jesus are, are of their father the devil, as I think is in Ephesians 2 it says that. They are enemies of God, Paul says in Romans somewhere. They're enemies of God. They're children of the devil. They're not brothers of Jesus. I mean, Jesus refers this parable to these brothers of mine. So we can forget that right now. J.F. Jameson Fawcett Brown agrees with me and says this, how bald and wretched, not to say unscriptural, is that view of it, which makes it a dialogue between Christ and heathens who never heard of his name and, of course, never felt any stirrings of love in their hearts. Well, if it's not all of human creation who is the object of the Christian's righteous ministrations, who is it? Well, it's the saints, all the saints, because Jesus said, these brothers are mine. I mean, you know, that's the end of the story. Not that there's anything wrong with helping non-Christians, of course. But Jesus here is talking about ministering to the saints. And by the way, that's something that we need to realize. We're supposed to take care of our Christian brothers and sisters at all costs. Now, the fact that Jesus does call us, his, call us his brothers is significant. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Quote, the meanest follower of Christ is acknowledged by him as his brother. What infinite condescension. Those whom many would scorn to set with the dogs of their flock are brothers and sisters of the blessed Jesus and shall soon be set among the princes of his. And that's something we need to remember. These were just ignorant fishermen that Jesus sets up as, says they're going to be eaten with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Ignorant fishermen starting church of Jesus Christ, the largest religion on earth today. It's amazing. And Jesus not only calls them brothers, he says these, at least whoever did all these things, feeding and, and, and giving water to and clothing to the least of these brothers of mine, even though the saint is not an apostle, not a martyr, or some other kind of leader in the church, even though he's poor, even though he's not gifted much in spiritual things, it does not matter. Take care of Christians. We've got to take care of our brothers and sisters, just like you would take care of a brother and sister in your own family. Now, the point of this parable is service, just like the parable of the, of the talents, because notice the do words in here. I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When you're serving Jesus... You're doing something, and you're serving your brothers. You're doing something for Jesus. You did it for the brother. You did it for Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left, this is the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The eternal fire, eternal means for a long, long time. This idea that of annihilation and soul sleep, I've always thought was ludicrous. There are a lot of big shot theologians out there trying to push this. Eternal fire, does that sound like something that's going to stop sometime? we got eternal life. Is eternal life going to stop? Well, why is eternal fire going to stop when eternal life is not going to stop? They're cursed, not because God is arbitrary or unjust. It's because they killed Jesus, and, they killed, and they're persecuting his church. They got exactly what they deserved, and notice that they get thrown to the same place that the devil and all of his demons, all of his angels go. Hell. Now, some people, Armenians mainly, like to note here, God did not prepare hell, prepare hell for sinners. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. Well, if you're going to start saying, well, no, a loving God wouldn't do that. Well, why did the loving God prepare, prepare hell for the devil and his angels? Didn't he love the devil? Didn't he love demons? Now, of course, John Gill not denies that, affirms that God did prepare the hell for unbelievers, even though he doesn't say so in this verse. Adam Clark, the Armenian, says God did not prepare hell for sinners. sinners. Well, note that the ending of the parable has God casting people people into hell. 
So if he's going to cast people into hell, if he knew before the foundation of the world who was going to be saved and who wasn't going to be saved, unless you're going to be an open theist and say God had to wait to find out, well, then he had to have somewhere to put them. So that means he prepared hell for the devil and his angels and unbelievers before the foundation of the world. We just saw in the previous parable, or excuse me, was it this parable, somewhere in this chapter that the kingdom of heaven was prepared before the foundation of the world. So was hell. Now, Jesus is making a strong point here. You know, hell, devil, and his angels, and you unbelieving Jews, the goats, are going to be thrown in the same place. that He's breathing hellfire. He's, he's continuing his same theme from Matthew 23 when he was in Jerusalem, and he talked about those eight woes. And he says, your house is left to you desolate and so forth, and you're going down. He's not missing any words. You're going to pay for what you've done, for killing me and for persecuting my church. Matthew 25, verses 42 through 46. For I was hungry, Jesus continues, and you gave me nothing to eat. Talking about the goats, talking about the bad guys. And, and, and he's referring to these Pharisees and Sadducees' attitude toward Jesus the whole time he was on earth in, ministering in Jerusalem, in Israel. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't, didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too, that's the goats, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, a thirsty, or a stranger without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, his sheep, his followers, his disciples, his apostles, his believers, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. In other words, punishment is going to be on those who, don't, who persecute the church. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's a good note. You know, the church all across the world today and throughout the centuries has received all kinds of punishment. People are going to pay for that. The communist Chinese who have thrown those wonderful Christ Chinese Christians into jail and stuck the cattle prods in their genitals and whipped them with telephones and and put them in gung fu positions in the blazing sun until they were half dead from from thirst, and their tongues were swelling up and choking off their air, and starving them to death, and sitting them in, and putting them in small rooms with a with rapists and criminals with an open privy at the end that was never cleaned, and the flies are buzzing around and over a hundred degree heat. All that that's going to be payment for that. Those people are going to go away into eternal punishment, i.e., hell, with a capital H. Because it's a place like Schenectady, New York, where certain people are going to go. Now, some people like to soften this and say, oh, now God would never put people into eternal punishment. Eternal's just too long. These annihilationists, the punishment doesn't last forever. Or there, there's some people that say hell lasts for a while, and then, and then people will just disappear, and they'll be annihilated, no more eternal punishment. No, eternal means forever. Notice that there's a parallel here. Eternal punishment, the goats go into, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, if you're going to say the goats don't go into eternal punishment, you're going to have to logically say the sheep will not go into eternal life. So you, are, you, are you prepared to say, Rob Bell, and, and all you compromising wussy puss evangelicals out there who are scared of the word hell, Joel Osteen, Andy Stanley, are you prepared to say that eternal doesn't mean eternal? Because if eternal doesn't mean eternal punishment for the ghost, then it also doesn't mean eternal life for the righteous, because the words are right here in parallel. Let me read verse 46 again. And they will go away, in, and they, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. You got it one way, you got to have it another way. 
Here's a final quote from Adam Clark, final quotation from Adam Clark, quote, I have seen the best things that have been written in favor of the final redemption of damned spirits. That's universal reconciliation. Clark says he's seen a lot of fancy theology on that, but I never saw an answer to the argument against that doctrine drawn from this verse, but what sound learning and criticism should be ashamed to acknowledge. In other words, it's as plain as the nose on your face. Hell is forever, it's very serious, and we don't want to be going there. And one way you can go there is to attack the sheep of Jesus Christ. Hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up, start with Matthew 26 in the next one.